Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Anytime a soccer coach takes over a new team anywhere, we get the same song. It's going to be exciting, attacking, creative soccer. The fans are going to be so excited to come see it. It's going to reflect the passion of the fan base. But more often than not, after a while, that turns into more pragmatic defensive soccer if we ever saw the attacking soccer to begin with. And for Greg Berhalter, it's been very much the same. Whenever he took over, uh, he talked about possession-based attacking soccer, and he talked about changing the way that people see American soccer around the world. Now, the question is, how has he done in this regard? In order to answer that question, I brought in a man who I feel like can contribute a lot to the subject. He is Joe Lowry. Uh, his written work has been featured in The Athletic on MLSsoccer.com. And of course, he's uh, one of the main members of the Total Soccer Show. And I would say that his post-national team tactical breakdowns are an absolute must-listen uh, for any fan out there. Joe, thank you so much for coming on. Welcome to YouTube. Yeah, thank you so much, Sam. Wow, you just said a lot of nice things about me. I'm here for it. <laughs> Absolutely. So I want to start out with just a baseline uh, so we can kind of get a feel for, uh, for your feel for this team right now. Uh, we do have a World Cup window coming up. Give me like a 1 out of 10 on your relative, let's say, relative confidence level in whether or not we're going to see a competent tactical approach from this national team in this window uh, that is, is, is going to excite the fan base. I'm saying that a cool six out of 10. I, I don't think it's, it's not unlikely, right? We've seen some interesting building blocks here from the U.S. recently. I think about the Costa Rica game. I think about the first Jamaica game, the one here in the United States. I think about the Mexico game, most importantly, the one in Cincinnati. Those games were really impressive performances from the U.S. They're moments where the U.S. had a lot of their best players on the field, where they were actually gelling, and the U.S. was controlling a lot of those games I think there's every possibility that we see those, especially against El Salvador on Thursday and against Honduras uh, a week from now, a little over a week from now. That'll be on a Wednesday. The Canada game is an interesting one. It's a wrinkle because John Herdman tweaks things a lot, and he likes to do so many different things. Even without Alfonso Davies, it's going to be a tough matchup for the United States. But if we set those aside, I think the U.S. has a lot of the tools to look good and play good soccer. We've seen glimpses of it. We haven't seen it consistently enough. Think back to that Honduras game, part one. You know, the first half of that was miserable, and, and the U.S. looked mm -hmm. awful in that game. But there's been good to go along with the bad. So I, I'm sitting at a six. I think it's possible. I think it even is, is trending towards likely that we see some really strong performances from the U.S. in this window. Yeah, I, you mentioned the three games that I think if you're an optimist, those are the three games you're looking at. And those three games have a ton in common. Uh, the Jamaica game, the Costa Rica game, and the Mexico game were all home games. And I think more importantly, they all featured the MMA midfield. Mm. And I think in those three games, we saw the Jamaica game was kind of showing us what could be. A Costa Rica game was kind of that gelling together a little bit more. And then that Mexico game was a, a result of, of, of the guys kind of coming together and, and really starting to express themselves and really feeling confident in, in what they're doing. Uh, can you kind of give us some ideas of what we're actually seeing on the field. I, I believe it was the Costa Rica game. Uh, they actually showed w one of the few times where we got to see like the, uh, the, the full wide all 22 of the, of the uh, attacking shape whenever the team was in possession. And we got, to see, we got to see the two fullbacks push very high up the field. Mm. We got to see the wingers kind of tight in the channels. And we got to see the three midfielders dropping pretty deep. Uh, but, but 
give me some uh, some detail here on, on what you're seeing from the tactical setup whenever this team is doing it correct. And now a word from today's sponsor, Bet Online. Would like to wish you a happy betting New Year as we continue our march towards the playoffs and beyond. Bet Online remains the number one spot for all betting action in 2022. New Year and a new updated desktop and mobile website. Sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use promo code believe that's b-l-e-a-v to get started from football basketball hockey boxing ufc and of course soccer right to your favorite vegas casino games don't wait to take advantage of all the amazing offers available in 2022 bet online is the fastest and easiest way to wager on all your favorite sports bet online where the game starts yes yeah, i think you laid out a lot of the foundation there that that 4-3-3 shape is what we've seen from the u.s most often in world cup qualifying really most often under great baralter in possession with a few dips into a three at the back here and there and we could see that at some point in the not too distant future but out of that four three three it is often the fullbacks pushing really high in this window it, it feels like it's going to be best on one side and anthony robinson on the other those players like to get involved in the attack robinson's a little bit more one-dimensional he likes to get forward and cross the ball in he's got speed to do that and runs in behind we saw that against jamaica and then Dest on the right side has skill to, to move into inter, interlap and move around a little bit more than Robinson does on the other side. And Baralta takes advantage of that kind of stuff. In those games that we've been talking about, Dest did some moving around. And when it's Musa on that side as the right side of the central midfielder, even if it's McKenney over there, which wouldn't surprise me either, if it's one of those two guys and if it's Tim Weah or, you know, will be Gio Reyna in this window, but Tim Weah, especially in that right wing spot, there's fluidity on that right side. The basic positioning, though, Sam, I think is I think you have it exactly right. The wingers tucked into the half spaces. There's some rotating, some overlapping with the with the fullbacks as they push up. The nine is the focal point of the attack, occasionally dropping in. The center backs have license to drive forward on the ball and to try to break lines. Tyler Adams is the connector piece between the, the center backs and the midfield group in, in the forward line. And then McKenny and Musa, in so many different ways, those guys run the show for the U.S. and they're starting at the eights. You're, you're spot on there with the commonality between the three games that we've mentioned with those with those MMA folks involved, right? I mean, Musa is so dynamic on the ball, so skillful. He deals with pressure better than I think any other central midfielder that the U.S. has. Luca De La Torre, I would put up in that conversation as well. But he's physically, man, just phenomenal and so technical on the ball. Not a great passer yet. But he brings so much on the dribble. And Kenny, he's everywhere all the time, right? He goes and he makes games happen. He makes mistakes too, but he is a catalyst for this team. So that for me is so much of, of the heart and the core of this team is in that midfield group with really technical players ahead of them. And I think that's what Baralta is really trying to, to get out of this team, to have the midfielders run the show, to have the attacking players bring a lot of that final product and, and hope for some production out of the nine as well. Yeah, and the question is going to be how do we see that on the road, particularly whenever that MMA midfield isn't on the field because we've seen two different national teams really between on at home and on the road that, that Jamaica game comes to mind. The, the, the recent Jamaica, the Jamaica away game as one where, man, coming off that Mexico game, just such a comprehensive performance, going to the Jamaica game where you see most of the same players on the field and it's just a completely different team. Now, I, I do want to know... Early on in the window, particularly I'm thinking about that El Salvador game, it was the, uh, uh, the first game, I, I think, in World Cup qualifying, and we saw a really disjointed national team. There was one moment I remember in particular uh, where I believe it, on the left flank it was Serginho Dest, uh, Conrad, and I believe yep. Sebastian Legette just all in the same channel and all frustrated with each other uh, and all occupied in the same space. Uh, th the question I have is, 
how much of this is tactics coming from the coach and how much of it is is time from the players just getting a chance mm-hmm. to play with each other and uh getting a chance to 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 figure out where each other are going to be I think it's some of both, right? I think it's, I mean, it's got to be hard to come into a national team environment and play with players who you haven't really interacted with a ton before. That Conrad and Dest example is, is a strange one because they've played together before. They've spent time with, with Barcelona. I don't think they were ever on the field together at the same time with Barcelona, but they spent time together, I believe, in the same U20 World Cup team back in what would have been 2019. So they had some familiarity with each other. For me, that specific example was down to players not really fitting together on the field in those spaces. You think about Dest's skill set and Conrad's skill set, and for me, they're very similar. They both want the ball. They both like to dribble. They both are incredibly skillful guys. But then you end up with a little bit of redundancy on that left side, and that, for me, was a huge issue in the El Salvador game. I think it might have even been Brendan Aronson involved in in midfield on that left side, or at least as one of the eights in those games, in, in that particular game. And that, for me, doesn't fit Aronson's skill set all that much either. When you're coming in on the road and you need to dictate some of the possession against a team like El Salvador, Aronson's not a guy that's really going to help you do that as one of the two eights in that 4-3-3 shape. So there are some problems with players coming in and not having a lot of familiarity with each other. I think in that particular example against El Salvador, it was more to do with players not being put in the best positions to succeed. We've seen that maybe one or two other times. I think about that Honduras away game with James Sands as a double pivot and Sargent on the right wing and Tyler Adams as a right wing back. And none of those really felt all that right to me either. Hindsight, of course, is twenty twenty, But I think it's a mix, Sam, to answer your question of lack of familiarity and maybe even a pinch more of the you know players being put in the right spot. I think one of the things that is uh, so great about listening to your analysis on the Total Soccer Show is you just get so excited about uh, talking about tactics and talking about how, how these things are coming together. Um, and it really um, it, it, it inspires others to get excited about the game as well. So I'm wondering from that regard, has there been a, a moment during World Cup qualifying, any particular moment where you saw a particular tactic or something come out uh, on the field that you got really excited about from this national team? Oh, I mean, I'm trying to think. There have been some good moments along the way. Really, the one that stands out to me first and foremost is the Mexico game, right? You think about what was on the line. It was a big moment for the U.S. The fact that they got all three points was absolutely massive for the U.S. and, and still is in this World Cup qualifying window. I guess this isn't a specific tactical thing necessarily, but how the U.S. came out and approached that game was really encouraging for me. They came out and they played, right? They came out and they pressed, and they didn't always build from the back in this hugely delicate way, but the quality was there. You could see Baralta getting the players in, in positions that really set them up to succeed. The midfield really performed well in that game, and there were nervy moments. I mean, you think in that first half, well, Jimenez and Inchoqui Lozano caused problems for the United States men's national team, and it could have been... It could have been 1-0 to Mexico at the break, but really in that game, the U.S. was the better team. And we saw finally after the two finals over the summer where the U.S. won the Gold Cup in the Nations League in, in the reverse order there, but didn't look all that convincing to my eye in either one of those moments. To get a more cohesive performance and have the counterpressing really beyond, to have Yunus Musa balling and really bossing the midfield in that game, that was a huge step. And none of, none of the things, that, again, none of the things were hugely... I don't know, experimental tactically or really all that creative. But the fact that everything was running, not everything, but the fact that most things were running fluidly and the U.S. looked really strong, that for me was, was huge in that Mexico game. Oh, yeah. there's That Mexico game was, I mean, arguably the 
best performance from a U.S. men's national team in a competitive match that we've ever seen, yeah. particularly against a, a team of the quality of Mexico. Uh, I, I think for me, um, the Costa Rica game comes to mind as like the first time where we saw Serginho Dest mm. and Junis Musa and I think yeah. uh, Tim Weah yep. just just operating so flawlessly on that right side. I, I think yeah. two of those goals came from, you know, Weah starting in the middle, going to the outside, Dest kind of coming in and filling in that channel. And then we see Musa kind of filling in as a right back. And, yeah. and you understand that this is something that, that those guys obviously talked about, discussed prior to the game, and we see him execute it out there on the yeah. field. That type of progress for me is just, it's really exciting to see. No, Sam, that's a great shout as well. That's one of the other things that came to mind for me. And to tie it back to how you sort of led this episode with Berhalter's tactical progression, right? His evolution, that's that those on-ball rotations in possession. You're talking about Dest advancing and way of pinching in and, and Musa dropping back. The fluidity in the rotations on the wings and in the half spaces, that's something that Berhalter's tried to implement from day one, right? That Panama game, I was there at what was the University of Phoenix Stadium in, in Glendale, right? That opening game, January camp, U.S. against Panama, not a great performance on the field, but Berhalter's his thesis was all out there, right? His, his thesis, at least in possession. You had wingers really wide at that point, and you had the eights filling the half spaces, and you had Tyler Adams, no, excuse me, Nick Lima, filling that that inverted right back role to pair next to Michael Bradley, forming more of a 3-2-2-3 shape. The exact positioning has changed, and the players have changed, and I would argue it's been simplified from then to now. But those rotations, I mean, the, the fluidity in those spaces that idea and that thesis is still there from Berhalter. We're seeing it now. The players are way better now than they were back in that January camp game. But a lot of the ideas are are similar from then to now, at least in possession. One of the biggest uh, discussion points in the last few days has been that of the omission of John Brooks. And, of course, Greg Berhalter said that it is only based on form uh, in his press conference. But later on in his press conference, whenever asked about Tim Ream, he did give us uh, some more a more tactical answer regarding Tim Ream, talking about how uh, he maybe doesn't have the speed and mobility to play the style that we uh, that the national team wants to play in this window. And a lot of folks have speculated that maybe some of that might apply to John Brooks as well. Uh, do you think that there's any uh, tactical explanation to uh, potentially leaving John Brooks off of this roster? I think there, there can be, but I'm hesitant to buy into that. So you think about John Brooks' game. When, when you watch John Brooks, it's pretty clear what his strengths are. It's pretty clear what his, weakness, what his weaknesses are. Maybe more so with Brooks than a lot of other players in the world, but certainly in the U.S. pool. Really strong left foot, hugely technical on the ball, can drive forward a little bit, but his his bread and butter is is breaking lines with his passing. That's what he's good at. That's what he's good at for the U.S. That's what he's always been good at. That's his thing. His weakness is dealing with attackers rushing towards him in space. He's not quick. He's not particularly agile. He's fast over long distances because he's a giant dude, right? But he's not all that solid defensively outside of aerial duels probably. So in, in this window in particular, you think about El Salvador at home and you think about Honduras at home. Yeah, there are situations where the U.S. and their center back specifically are going to be backpedaling, are going to have to cover a lot of ground and, and probably are going to be isolated in space against someone like Romel Kyoto or against someone like Albert Elise. That's a risk, right? And, and I don't feel as comfortable if I'm Greg Berhalter with John Brooks filling that job as I do with probably any of the other center backs that he did call in, maybe outside of Mark McKenzie, but even still. Zimmerman and Miles Robinson, Chris Richards, and, and probably McKenzie as well, you take them in that defensive situation over John Brooks. The challenge there, though, is 
before those defensive transitions situations even happen for the U.S., there's going to be minutes at times, I would bet, of of opportunities for the U.S. and their center back specifically to break lines, right? That's why you have John Brooks is to break through a Honduras. I mean, man, we saw that in the Nations League semifinal. There's this pass that he hits with his left foot that carves through so many opposition players to find, shoot, it might be Dest on that right wing. I don't remember who the, the player was on the right early on in that Honduras game. But those passes and those situations against a compact team, against a team that's preparing to attack in transition that then puts your center backs in isolated situations. You want John Brooks for the first half of that, but less so for the second half. You want him to break lines. You don't really want him to have to deal with those moments in space, but that's why you have Tyler Adams. That's why you have Weston McKinney. That's why you have Eunice Musa to take the load off of a Brooks or off of a Tim Ream. So you can rely on their offensive ability. You can take advantage of their ability to contribute in possession. So I don't know that I really buy the hold. The games aren't right for John Brooks. Or, or Tim Reamer, whoever that, that line-breaking center back is, because if these games aren't right, then which ones are? Is it is it Mexico? Is it dealing with those? Is it dealing with Chucky Lozano and, and Tecatito and Diego Linez? I mean, and Raul Jimenez and, and all of those players in space? I don't I don't think so. If I'm Great Baralter, I want Brooks for a game like this. I want him against Honduras. I want him against El Salvador. And the fact that he's not involved in this camp makes me think that there's something else going on. Yeah, I definitely agreed there. Now, you mentioned John Brooks's ability to hit uh, long diagonals, and he's probably the best long passer on this team. Uh, the The Nations League game against Honduras comes to mind where he hit that long pass that Wes McKinney headed back across to P. I I think it was mm -hmm. Weston, headed back across to PFOC for that goal. Uh, just a massive moment that I don't know there's too many players in the pool that could do that outside of John Brooks. Now, when Greg Berhalter took over as the national team coach, that long ball, that ability to hit that long ball, that long diagonal was like the major tactical topic of conversation. <laughs> I mean, he was coming from uh, the Columbus crew who famously had, you know, they had fullbacks that came way up the field and they had a defensive playmaker who would drop in deep. It was Will Trapp who would ping balls right and left. Uh, Berhalter tried out Bradley in that position. He tried out Will Trapp. He tried out Jackson Ewell. Uh, the, the long ball was something that he desperately tried to get into this offense. But at this point, if there's no more John Brooks and you got Tyler Adams, who's a wonderful player, but hitting the long ball is not quite his strength, has the national team moved away from that long diagonal at this point? In certain respects, yes. Right. The, the profile of... The sixth specifically, I love that you bring up Will Trap because that was the model. At least it seemed to us on the outside that that was the model. Will Trap gone. Jackson Ewell, gone, it seems like at this point. And Michael Bradley, gone. So those were the three players that it felt to me like Peralta was really trying to use and use that crew model, use that that type of six, the deep-flying playmaker, and, and really integrate that into the national team. And it, it didn't work all that well. None of those three guys could to do that job at a high enough level to really make an impact for the national team. I think about like, Steven Estacchio for Canada. He's more similar to the initial uh, Baralther six than I think any of the players that he brings in now, Baralther, in Tyler Adams and Kelly Costa. Those are the two primary sixes at this point. So the, the long ball is more or less disappeared from that six position based off of profile, if nothing else. The center back spots without John Brooks and Tim Ream, when those players aren't involved, yeah, you lose a lot of the technical ability out of the back. Chris Richards can do some of those things, but he's not going to be really aggressively playing those long diagonals or, or even breaking lines at the frequency of a John Brooks or a Tim Ream. Where I do see some of those switches happening, though, Sam, is with Weston McKinney. 
in particular. Mm -hmm. He's a guy who likes to drop a little bit deeper to get touches on the ball. I think partly because he doesn't get to do as much of that for club. And he is a technical player, but not compared to a lot of the other guys that Juve have in, in their midfield and in their attacking line. So he gets to do a little something different with the national team. He'll drop and he will dictate play. He'll almost take over that half deep line playmaker, half all action midfielder type and, and operate as the, the all around eight. And he'll do all the jobs. He doesn't do it as much as, as Jackson you used to do. And he doesn't play it from the same spot either. He doesn't drop into that six space nearly as much, but I think there is still some of that left and you still see some of the tactical mindset of, okay, we have the ball on this side. We want to draw the opposition towards us and take advantage of the space on the weak side and, and then funnel the ball up to Tim Wea on the right or to Christian Pulisic on the left or whoever is in those two winger spots. So by and large, the focus on that long diagonal, I think, has dissipated at least mostly. But there are still some little, I don't know, some little bits and pieces of that leftover. It's so interesting you bring up Weston McKinney, man. I, there was a period, I believe it was after the Jamaica game, where some fans were sort of questioning whether or not J Weston McKinney was even a starter on this national team, mm -hmm. if it should be like Tyler Adams, uh, Gio Reyna, and Eunice Musa in the midfield. And that was like right before he just went unconscious and became the best American player out there right now. I thought it was ridiculous. That Jamaica game, he hit some beautiful passes. One comes to mind was uh, he hit one over the top to Eunice Musa, who was making a dart and run into the box. Mm -hmm. And Musa took it down off of his chest, but it just got away from him. But it was just one of those passes that it's like, do you got that in your bag, Weston? I mean, that's that's unbelievable. The thing about Weston for me, I see him hit probably two or three like ridiculous long passes a game. But if you look at his advanced statistics, they all show that he's like a terrible long passer. So I don't hmm. I don't know. I don't understand how that kind of uh, correlates because like the, the player that I see on the field versus the player in the advanced statistics is, is a little bit interesting to me. I don't know if you have any insights on that. Sure. Yeah. One, one thought that comes to mind, if you're looking at, you know, counting stats, if you're looking at, okay, he compete, he, he completed, you know, six of 15 long balls or whatever it would be. There's so much context that's stripped away from those particular numbers, right? And this is why it's important no matter what sport or no matter what numbers you're looking at to think about the context of these situations, you know, there's every possibility that Weston McKinney is being asked in those situations, in this hypothetical, to play long balls up to Avro Morata or to play long balls up to whoever in the front line for Juve. And and he's being asked to do that whether or not that player is really open or not. So it's not necessarily him trying to chip a ball in behind for Juve to find Chiesa, although he's not healthy at this point, to find someone running in behind. And, and those passes are wide open. It could just as likely or even more likely be a situation where he's just being asked to play those passes and Juve are trying to win the second ball or whatever the situation mm -hmm. is. So I think that's one of those cases where maybe you should trust your eye over that particular number with, in, in, unless you do go back through and watch and you learn that they match up a little bit more than we might think. Now, one thing about Weston McKinney that I don't think you can deny at this point is that he's just such a weapon in the box on headers. And if you watch Juventus right now, the game that I saw this weekend, whenever they were in attack, you'd often see Paulo Dybala actually float out wide and Weston McKinney was in the box as sometimes the only player in the box and sometimes right up beside Alvaro Morata in the box. For the national team, I've seen it happen where I think in the Mexico game or maybe the Costa Rica game, it was Brennan Aaronson who would often drift out wide in order to allow Wes McKinney to kind of float into the box. Uh, and that's all well and good with Brennan Aronson, but I wonder if you have uh, potentially Christian Pulisic playing on that left flank, uh, another player that you definitely want in the box. How do you, how do you kind of make it work in order for Wes McKinney to get in there and be uh, that incredible weapon on crosses that he's become? 
Well, first of all, you want to take advantage of those situations on set pieces, right? I think back to the Nations League final, and Weston McKinney made that game in a lot of ways with his his work in the box on set pieces. So that's huge. Getting him in that, in those spaces and having him try to dunk on as many people as possible, that's absolutely what you want to do if you're Greg Berhalter. In open play, it is a little more complicated, right? I think there's situations where you can take advantage of McKinney's mobility and have him arrive in the box late. That's something that Berhalter's talked about before. Weston McKinney's club coaches, I'm pretty sure I've talked about that before as well. Having him be the trailing runner and attack, the penalty spot or attack, you know, six or eight yards out from goal and have him look for the ball in the air and head it into the back of the net. That's something you can absolutely do in transition. It does change a little bit, though, Sam. You're right. If it's Christian Pulisic on one side versus Aronson on that, that same side. So some of the rotations are going to be a little different. Still, I think there's opportunities to get McKenney in the box, especially if you're dominating possession. He can drop deep mm-hmm. and, and conduct play a little bit, and then he can he can advance in those spaces, right? He can dance inside the 18, get on the ball, or or just simply head the ball towards goal. I think there's absolutely opportunities to do that, regardless of who that provider is on the left side. Yeah, and you know, the U.S. doesn't have anybody that can cross the ball like Juan Cuadrado, so I don't know that it's been uh, quite as much of a, a weapon utilized, but I kind of, I want to shift gears away from uh, the U.S. Men's National Team per se and kind of talk about the way that Americans view tactics in general, because mm-hmm. I've, I've always been interested in the difference between uh, the way that American sports are broadcast versus the way that European soccer is often broadcast. I mean, uh, we just lost a, a broadcasting giant in John Matt and John Madden was famous for, you know, after every play, he would use his little yellow marker and kind of diagram where the offensive line runs and where the receivers run. Uh, in football, in basketball, after every play, after every break, we've got some type of analysis on, like, the tactics in the game. That's something that Americans are absolutely obsessed with. And whenever we're not getting tactics, we're getting statistics. There's statistics coming at us, particularly baseball is a sport known for its statistics. Now flip over to the European side. Whenever you watch particularly any type of uh, English-based uh, soccer game, and the, the, the player analysis comes from it much more of, of like a boots-on-the-ground perspective. Uh, whenever they ask the, the player to, or, or the, the, the color commentator to break down what just happened, he'll often say, well, he should have got more on that pass or, you know, he, he picked the wrong option in, in possession or, you know, he, he should have done better with that. It's often like a negative and it's very much uh, from the player perspective. It's very rare that in, in soccer you'll hear like a European broadcaster talk about how like the left back did this in order to create space for the midfielder who did this. Um, what Do you think that Americans are particularly inclined to look at tactics, discuss tactics, care about tactics because of the other sports that are popular in this country? I think there's a lot of potential for that to be the case. I don't think that's the case right now. I, I, I agree with your assessment, Sam, of especially a lot of those British games. It's a little bit of a cliche to think about, you know, the old British player next to the next to the guy doing play-by-play, but I think it's true, and I generally agree with the, your assessment there with, with some specific examples. There's a lot of guys and, and, and women out there that do a really great job in that analyst role, but I think there's still a lot of that in the US and there's less of it just because of the history of soccer in this country. You don't get as much of the old, you know, talking head from, from any of the analysts that really do work for ESPN or for Fox or for CBS or any of that stuff. I think some of those guys do a really good job. Taylor Twelman in particular, I think does a nice job of analyzing play and, and hitting at some of those. Yeah, this maybe wasn't the right passing option in this particular moment because that is important. Let's not completely set that aside, but they'll do some of that, but then also talk about how, 
you know, maybe a lack of movement from Ricardo Pepe in this situation or too much movement from Pepe in this situation is, is harming the U.S. or the U.S. needs this or that or he analyzes something. I think a lot of that stuff is good. I don't think there's enough of it, though. And, and that is my bias because that's a lot of what I enjoy about <laughs> soccer and about sports in general. So I'm happy to admit that. But I think there's ways to discuss strategy and to discuss tactics and statistics in a way that's consumable for the fan. Because I think that's a lot of times what broadcasters shy away from is, you know, oh, this is going to be too heady or, oh, this is going to be too complex and we're going to lose an audience. I don't know that that's necessarily true for a lot of the reasons you laid out, right? Other sports were used to this stuff. We're used to getting some of that knowledge and some of that insight about really what's happening on the field or on the court. We don't get as much of that in soccer as I would like. And I think it's changing slowly. And I think it's going to continue to change. And I really hope it does over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah. One of the things we're seeing so much, you mentioned that there's just not a lot of it out there, is that so much of the soccer world for so long has been uh, fan-generated. I mean, we're talking right now on a, on a fan-generated YouTube channel. Uh, you work on a fan-generated uh, podcast. You know, there's, there's not a lot of... Uh, uh, there is more and more now big business getting into the soccer world, but for a long time it's been uh, fan-generated content. And one of the things, if you spend any time on any of the on the Twitter sphere or Reddit or just anywhere where fans are talking, there's going to be every touch videos and there's going to be clips with analysis and all that kind of breakdown. Uh, so more and more fans are getting into that and kind of looking for. Uh, boy, you mentioned Luca De La Torre earlier as a player who uh, reminds you sort of Yunus Musa who can penetrate upfield and I don't know how many uh, Yunus Musa analysis video I mean uh, Luca De La Torre analysis videos I've seen lately where they show Yunus Musa picking up the ball uh, I'm conflating Musa and <laughs> De La Torre I'm too excited uh, De La Torre picking up the ball and running at the uh, defense I'm wondering though uh, with all the uh, the fans on board creating content is there is there some things that you think that are common misconceptions or things that fans might miss uh, regarding tactics I think one thing that's important, and I'm still trying to, to learn about this myself and really figure out how to quantify this, and I, I'm not going to be the one making those advancements. It's going to be people that are a lot smarter than me, but is, is the misconception that only things that happen on the ball are important? And I don't know that a lot of people would actually go out and say that, right? Because we have this idea of, okay, there's one player on the ball. In order for that player to advance the ball and move closer towards goal, there's going to have to be something that happens off the ball. A teammate's going to have to get open. Someone's going to have to drop into the base or make a run in behind. But I think so often we get caught up. You mentioned those compilations, which are great, incredibly helpful for those that want to talk about this stuff and don't have the time to watch 87 Heracles games and, you know, Musa's Covid Del Rey appearances. Like, there's not enough time in the day for that stuff. So these on-ball compilations are, are really important. But there's this idea that we still can only really measure what happens on the ball. And that's true. We don't have a ton of great ways statistically to quantify the value of certain types of off-ball movements. We're starting to be able to track and count up how many off-ball runs are happening, where they're happening. But I think there's still a gap between that and actually figuring out how much those things are worth. And for me, I get I get caught up in this, right? Of all the things we've talked about, Musa and McKenney and you know, whoever else, Wea coming in on that right side, whatever, we've been talking about what they do on the ball. Lot, lot, at least a lot more than what they do off the ball. And that's the natural inclination when we all watch soccer games. It's my inclination. I want to watch the ball. I want to watch Musa drive forward. I want to watch you know John Brooks pick lines or whatever the situation is. That stuff is great, and that stuff is important. But it's maybe... 5% of a player's overall actions in the game, maybe less than that. And, and that doesn't even factor in defensively how they move and how they shift. So 
I do think that is a, a little bit of maybe an unconscious misconception, and, and maybe it's just fueled by the fact that we don't have enough information to quantify and really value a lot of these things in a better way. But I think there's still some danger in only thinking about this, and I fall into this trap. There's some danger of only thinking about things when players have the ball versus a more holistic view of the game. Yeah, that's really interesting, man. I think it's what makes soccer so captivating is it truly is a 360-degree game. Like, you can't look at any one aspect of any player uh, and, and just uh, decide that that's what's important uh, because it, it truly is how everything that you do and how you integrate with everybody else on the field. Uh, that's that's kind of what decides wins and losses, man. It, it's, it's so much of uh, the... Um, the pressures and how your pressure affects somebody else pressuring yeah. and, and just how, you know, whenever you're talking about the press or whatever it is, it's just, uh, it's so interlocking and so important. Um, I, I want to move on to uh, an article that you wrote on MLSsoccer.com talking about the uh, tactical trends of MLS in 2021. And if I may, I think it would be fair to say that the tactical trends in MLS in 2021 represent largely the tactical trends of soccer in 2021. A lot of things that we saw in MLS, we saw uh, in the rest of the world. And one of those was uh, the, the idea that we're seeing less, how did you put it, less offense, less goals, because the, the, the disruptor has come back mm. into the game. Sure. Yeah. So one of the points that I talked about in that article for MLS is this idea of of the ball being in play less in Major League Soccer than anywhere else. And I don't have evolving in play less in Major League Soccer last season than the season before, I should say. I don't have the numbers for the effective playing time. That's the official metric. I don't have the numbers for that for you know any of the European leagues or anywhere outside of Major League Soccer. But I thought it was interesting. It was something like I don't know around a minute of time where the ball was out of play last year that it would have been in play in 2020, right? This idea that there was just less soccer happening. And with that, I, at least one thing that I could see as a possible explanation for that is the introduction of, of certain coaches and styles into the league. You think about Hernan Losada with DC United. That team came to press in a way that Ben Olsen's DC United never did, right? I mean, you've got Paul Areola and Julian Gressel and Andy Nahar breathing down your neck on the right side for DC United. And, and Losada's team was so much fun to watch even though they ended up missing the playoffs. You've got the Red Bull is always doing their thing. LAFC is still pressing really high. NYCFC, so many of these teams really lean into the disruptive element of the game. And so even less maybe that an individual player acting as a disruptor, it's, it's more about stylistically how teams are trying to approach games and, and win soccer games. And I think that might have, might have borne its, itself out on the field in MLS last year. Yeah, I think the history of soccer is always marked by this kind of oscillation between like creativity and then defense and creativity and defense. And it kind of goes back and forth. Uh, one of the, the great movements of soccer was uh, Pep Guardiola's Barcelona team with the Tiki Taka. And then, you know, um, Jose Mourinho came around and kind of created like the latest version of really negative tactics that, uh, you know, parked the bus and then counterattack that really stifled that Barcelona game. And then Jurgen Klopp comes along along with his gig and press and reintroduces the press in a major way. And it's really uh, it just that has changed the game in, in a number of different ways, forcing uh, 
all the players on the field to be more involved in the defense and, and be more athletic across the board. Uh, you have to work a lot harder as a soccer player, and I think we see that uh, with some of the top players and, and kind of the, the loss of, uh, of that classic number 10, that creative player, the, the, the Ronaldinho's of the world. Uh, but one of the latest movements that we've seen as kind of an answer to the Gagan press has been that three-man back line, and you do mention that uh, as a trend that's really come to MLS. How does the three-man back line kind of come into this world world that is now uh, so uh, press focused. Sure. Yeah, you use the term oscillating. I like that a lot. I've, I've often described it as, as being cyclical, right? These trends throughout soccer's history, one thing comes in and is adopted and then it fades away as another tactic is adopted that that time is that first one and it goes on and on and on, right? The back three is something that's existed in soccer for a really long time, longer than either one of us have been alive, right? This is something that is is a big part of soccer's history. And it comes up for a few different reasons, right? There's a whole host of reasons why coaches want to use that shape. It does provide a little bit more natural defensive stability, although it depends on how you want to play. It gives you different angles as you progress the ball. You have those outside center backs that can then do a lot more of the, the ball progression and can do uh, line-making passes with their dominant foot on either side or can drive the ball forward out of that, that back line. It gives you different looks in the front line, and it does adjust your spacing a little bit. We're seeing a lot of teams around the world, whether it's just a back three from the start and, and they're playing a back three or back five defensively with whatever positioning ahead of that, or maybe it's a back four defensively in a 4-4-2. Juve do this a lot. We talked about this. Uh, we talked about Juve plenty already, but they'll do this where they've got the back four and then they'll shift the right back or the left back into the, the back line and have them be a center back in possession. And Danilo's done that for them before. There's there's a bunch of examples. A lot of them are slipping my mind right now. Alistair Johnson does it for Canada, speaking of the U.S. men's national team and that progression. And I think he might end up doing something similar for, for the Montreal, CF Montreal, not Montreal Impact this year in Major League Soccer. But the back three gives you different looks and it allows you to change up how you play. There's some different rotations you can take advantage of out of that shape. And so last year, Major League Soccer, we saw a really big increase. Teams that had not really spent any time ever using a back three in, in their short, admittedly, histories in Major League Soccer, like LAFC. They spent, I think, maybe one game ever under Bob Bradley in a back three. Last year, they were a heavy back three team. Montreal, again, heavy back three. Hernan Losada came in and played a back three. Uh, the, the Seattle Sounders, Brian Schmetzer, shifted to a back three. They may be back to a back four this year with the addition of Albert Rusnak. But there's so much fluidity in soccer happening now, where even if they're not expressly, even if teams aren't expressly starting in a three at the back shape for whatever reason, they might rotate into it mid-game, and, and those possessions still count towards the idea of these teams shifting toward that three at the back shape. So it's it's a really interesting one to me, and a whole host of reasons as to why a team might prefer that look versus a two-center back look, but it certainly was a, a big part of MLS last year. And we've seen it with the national team a few times at this point. Uh, I, I recall the Nations League final against Mexico, uh, Greg Start in a back three, and then in the um, the almost cataclysmic first half of that Honduras game. Uh, the U.S. was in a back three and quickly changed out of it. Uh, we've mostly seen a back four from Greg uh, throughout World Cup qualifying, but you know, I, I was listening to the Orange Slices podcast recently, and Mark McKenzie and uh, Chris Richards were talking about the back three, talking about how they prefer playing in a back three because it allows them to get further up the field, yeah. have more impact on the game. Uh, and and I, I know a lot of fans out there would like to see a back three from the U.S. men's national team. Is that that something that you see working for this squad or you think because of the players that are available in this particular squad it's it's something that uh, maybe Greg should shy away from at, the, in the, at this moment it's something I can see being really valuable for specific games or specific moments 
But for me, anything that takes away a central midfielder for the U.S. right now, as long as Adams and McKay and Musa are healthy, I think anything that takes one of those guys off the field is not something that the U.S. should be looking for, right? Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with Richards and McKenzie there, and I love that that's their analysis. The back three really does let them get further forward, and that's another factor behind this, at least domestic shift, probably some global aspect here too, uh, shift towards a back three. Center backs are increasingly technical, right? They're increasingly athletic. Kamal Miller, another Canadian, um, he, he plays that role for Montreal and Canada of this left-sided center back. He's been a fullback before for Orlando. He's been a fullback in Major League Soccer, but he fits that mold of the modern-day athletic outside center back. Teams want those, and, and the U.S. has some of those guys. And Richards, I think, is probably the best example of one of those players. He does it for Hoffenheim. But again, to circle back, anything that, that doesn't let you get that MMA trio on the field not something I think the U.S. should be looking for. If one of those guys is is out for uh, whatever reason, I think it becomes a lot more appealing. And maybe not. Maybe you've got Gio Reyna who can deputize there, and, and maybe more than deputize there, right? You've got Luca De La Torre who's ready, and, and maybe he'll impress Peralta at some point. Maybe not. So those things aside, I don't think you want to shift to a, a back three as a primary tactical look because I think it takes away from your biggest strength. Yeah, that's that's exactly my thoughts on it. As long as you have Tyler Adams available, uh, he just brings so much as a six. Uh, and there's just no other player that we have that can replicate that. So if he's unavailable like he was for uh, the, a big part of last year, uh, then all of a sudden the back three comes into play. But then that means maybe John Brooks comes back into the squad or maybe, I, I don't know, it's going to sure. make something really interesting there. And we, we don't know what's going on with John Brooks at, at the moment right now. Uh, one thing I, I, I am curious about, we talked about a lot of the trends in soccer that we've seen over the last uh, 15 years or so. And, and currently we're in this world where there is a lot of back threes taking place uh, and there is a lot of uh, the, we're still seeing the, the counter to the counter attack uh, a lot of that a lot of winning the ball further up the field maybe one or two passes and then a shot that type of uh, offense I'm curious what do you think is going to be the next evolution of the game uh, mm. past this point yeah it's a great question and, and I'm so curious to fast forward 15 years from now and find out a couple of things that, that come to mind for me, these aren't necessarily macro evolutions. They're not, you know, holistic style changes, but I think I think they will play a part in soccer's shift over the next decade or two decades. One thing is increasingly athletic center backs who play an increasingly larger role in how teams attack. I mean, the, the top teams in the world rely, and this has been true for a while now, but they rely on center backs to break lines with their passing. You know, that happens with, with Pep's teams. It happens with Klopp teams. It happens with Yuli Nagelsmann's teams. But one thing we see from a lot of these younger center backs, and I just mentioned it, is increasingly athletic guys. Not just technical, but physical as well. I think about Upamecano for Bayern Munich. I think about, again, this is a much, much different example at a much lower level. But Kamal Miller, again, someone who's really fast, quick over short spaces. Andy Nahar, again, someone who's not featuring with Honduras but you know, has earlier on in this World Cup qualifying cycle and, and does a really did a really important job with DC last year. These athletic players are huge parts of their team. So, so increasingly athletic center backs, I think, will play a part in really every phase of the game. It allows you to play a little bit differently and to play even further on the front foot. That's one thing. The other thing that comes to mind for me is faster gameplay. And I don't know exactly what form this will take, but I think if you look back 50 years from now or even you know two decades ago, whatever, 25 years ago, Soccer players are better athletes now than they used to be for a whole host of reasons, right? For, you know, medical science reasons, sports science reasons, and for you know, just our, our improving understanding about how to prepare players and, and increasingly getting better athletes to want to play sports and being able to provide the mechanisms to do that. 
I think as the, the pool of players continues to get smarter and continues to get more athletic and, and teams are more and more capable of harnessing that athleticism, that's going to change soccer somehow. My hunch is that it's going to make soccer even more pressy. I guess it's going to continue to, you know, provoke, uh, continue to, to really help and prompt teams to step forward and be aggressive. But also at the same time, this is the cyclical part, then it also can make you more intrigued and more interested in sitting a little bit deeper and attacking on the break with those really impressive athletes and really technical players. So I don't know exactly what form that will take, but I think the game's going to continue to get faster. I think there's going to continue to be better and better athletes involved at center back and really all over the field. That's a, that's such a great point about the center backs. It just made me kind of think about um, the idea of, uh, of positional primes, how hmm. center backs reaching their prime tend to be a bit older than say mm. forwards or, or wingers, especially. I think wingers are the youngest to reach their primes. I, I can't remember exactly what it was, but I think that's correct. Uh, but that makes sense in that um, a lot of these teams can feed. I'm thinking about Chelsea with like Mason Mount and Havertz and, and Pulisic, these very young players where uh, a coach like Tuchel can decide to change how he wants to play and go to these young players. But whenever it comes to the center backs, there's just not a whole, it's it's much tougher. You got to wait for the Chris Richards of a, of the world to develop to uh, to to reach their primes before you can really pivot. Uh, that's such an interesting little uh, caveat there. I do want to talk of the, the last thing I want to talk to you about. I feel like it's a very fitting in because we just spent 40 minutes talking about tactics is to kind of question the whole discussion on its head. <laughs> I remember, I believe I was listening to Alexi Lawless in one of his spaces recently where someone asked him about tactics. Um, and particularly, I think it was in response to Christian Pulisic's recent interview uh, that he did where he the coach the, the the interviewer asked him about tactics and he said something like the i don't want us to be judged by our tactics uh you know it's more about how we play or something like that whenever you ask a, a soccer player about the tactics or you ask the coaches about the tactics they so often downplay the tactics mm -hmm. and just talk about you know it's about how you go out there and, and express yourself uh, i'm just wondering if you if you are, are familiar with Polisic's recent comments and kind of that whole idea and, and how do you respond to that yeah, I mean, that idea is, I think, a really common one. And I'm not sure it's wrong, to be honest with you. I don't think that idea is is entirely wrong. Players need to go out there and perform, right? They need to go out there and compete and give maximum effort, right? The difference between, you know, a 2-0 win and a 2-0 loss is not all that great. And, and a big factor of that can be players not executing, right? So that's huge. And, and that, if you're a player, that's probably the most important thing to you at all times. That's your moneymaker, Right. At the same time, and I think this is something that Greg Peralta would agree with, and a lot of you know well-known coaches would agree with. Tactics give you a foundation for those players to go out and execute. I think if you don't have at least a baseline understanding of this is how we want to play, this is how we want to set up in these situations, this is what's going to happen, blah blah blah. If you don't have that, you're not setting yourself up to succeed, right? Your players can still go out there and play, and, and you might still win, right? If you have the best players in the world, you're probably going to win more often than you're going to lose, right? And that's what we're seeing with the U.S. is talent is higher now, I would argue, than it's ever been. And so in some ways, the tactics matter a little bit less now than they used to. You can have a poor game plan or even times poor execution, and you can still beat Honduras 3-0. You can still beat El Salvador. You can still beat Mexico, whatever, right? We're starting to see that with the U.S. But at the same time, I think you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't have some established game plan, if you don't have some tactical approach. Christian Pulisic can afford not to worry about tactics, right? Alexi Lalas can afford not to worry about those things as much. They need to understand little you know, bits and pieces of it. They don't have to come up with the entire game plan. I think if those things go away, 
your life as a player becomes a lot harder. So that's my I'm a rebuttal of sorts. But I don't I don't entirely disagree with that idea that tactics are, are overblown and over discussed. I feel that sometimes in myself, right? Players are the most important thing by far. If you don't have good players, you're probably not going to win games. If you have a bunch of bad players but a really good game plan, probably still not going to win the game. In a perfect world, you have both. And I think that's the the really the middle ground that you want to be in. That's what a lot of the top teams end up defaulting to. Joe, thank you so much. This has been an absolute blast. It's been really fun discussing some of my uh, my harebrained theories with you and kind of putting it to you, see where you stand on that. I want to give you an opportunity to uh, let everybody know where they can find you and where they can find your work. Sure. Yeah, I think the best place to go is to follow me on Twitter at Joe C. Lowry. I'll have links to the things I'm working on, the things I'm writing and podcasts and everything from there. You can listen to me if, if, uh, if you want to on the Total Soccer Show. That's a great spot. We'll have reviews after all of these upcoming World Cup qualifiers. You can read my stuff on The Athletic or at MLSoccer.com. Sam, that's it. I've been self-indulgent enough already. <laughs> Joe, thank you so much for coming on. Guys, thank you so much for watching. If you're still watching at this point, make sure you hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, all that good stuff. For Joe Lowry, my name is Sam. This is the Yank Report brought to you by Bet Online. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.